Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. Here's one for you, dear and fair-minded listener. It's a story about the little guy, the comeback kid, the down-and-outer who, in a rare display of cunning, courage, and skill, turns the tables on his far mightier foe and, against all odds, wins for himself an inspired and decisive victory. It's a story as old as that of David and Goliath. Actually, it is the story of David and Goliath, and it's the narrative framework in which an army of Redditors banded together recently to take on the hulking Goliath of some of Wall Street's most powerful institutions. Pulling their collective firepower, some 6 million message board Davids joined forces to bid up the price of a handful of carefully selected stocks. Stocks in which a few of Wall Street's darling hedge funds had taken considerably painful short positions. And so was the stage set for a classic Wall Street versus Main Street smackdown. As the Reddit army unleashed their millions of bids, pumping up the prices of stocks like GameStop and AMC, the hedgies were forced to cover their shorts, that is, to buy back their borrowed positions at inflated prices to cover their bets, thereby driving the prices even higher. Some stocks, like GameStop, rocketed hundreds of percent in just a few trading sessions, showering spoils on the multitudes of Davids and spoiling the picnic of a few felled Goliaths. But hey, all's fair in love and war, right? Hmm, wrong. No sooner had they lost their shorts, so to speak, did the Goliaths go crying to their regulator buddies over at the Securities and Exchange Commission. If anyone's going to rig these markets, they seem to say, it's going to be us. And they had a point. After all, what had Wall Street's fat cats been paying the umpires for, if not to stack the deck squarely in their favor? Which brings us to Janet Yellen, US Treasury Secretary and very expensive speaker, or VES for short who waded into the fray just this week to convene a discussion on what she perceived as unacceptable levels of volatility in the markets. As a spokesperson for Madam Secretary's office told Reuters, quote, Secretary Yellen believes the integrity of markets is important and has asked for a discussion of recent volatility in financial markets and whether recent activities are consistent with investor protection and fair and efficient markets, end quote. All of which leads one to ask, protection for whom exactly? And what do we mean by fair anyway? Such a problematic word. Fair for the winner? Or fair for the loser? Or fair for the invigilator who wraps the gavel with one hand while pocketing her million-dollar paychecks with the other? Yes, gentle listener, according to the newswires, Ms. Yellen received no less than $7.2 million in speaking fees, since she left her post at the Federal Reserve just two years ago. And who do you suppose she was cuddling up to at those cosy confabs? Was it Roaring Kitty and Deep Effing Value from the Reddit message boards? Or any of the other six million little guys in those now storied trades? Hmm, listeners don't need us to follow the money to know that those friendly fees flowed not from Reddit message boards, but from the deep coffers belonging to the usual suspects. City. Goldman, Credit Suisse, Deloitte, and a veritable perp walk of Wall Street's too-big-to-fail banking institutions. And we mustn't forget Citadel, the gigantic fund which extended Melvin Capital a $2.75 billion lifeline after the latter firm suffered massive casualties during the whole GameStop saga. According to official filings, Citadel paid no less than $700,000 to Miss Yellen for services rendered just last year. Now that's a lot of money on the scales for a humble public servant, especially one charged with invigilating fair and just market conditions. 
Yes, patient listener, the roaring kiddies and deep effing values might have won the first battle, but one gets the distinct sense that the war is only just beginning. Game on, we say. That brings us all to this week's episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast, in which I'm joined by my good friend and tireless champion of the individual, Mr. Dan Denning. In our freewheeling discussion, we visit the Reddit saga, take a peek at what a Bezos-less Amazon might look like in the future, and also unpack Dan and Bill Bonner's latest trade of the decade. So please join us for all that and plenty more in my conversation with Dan up next. I just hit I, just hit record by the way, so know yeah. that you're that you're potentially compromised. Uh. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> you know, it's it's um, it's it's neither here nor there. But what was interesting about the state so far, as opposed to the private sector, is that in the last six months, all of my credit cards have been recalled and reissued for contactless payment, and this is not unusual for people who live in the UK or. I think Australia, but it, it has been, the United States has been way behind in terms of payment systems with respect to contactless tap payments. It, it is very convenient, but it requires that your, your credit card have an RFID chip. And, you know, I don't know a lot about RFID chips, but it's obviously communicating enough information is embedded on the chip about you, that it's your card. And I wonder if we're headed towards some kind of singularity of identity which your digital identity was linked to your physical identity or your dna with these uh these covid passports that you know it's one thing to just prove that you tested negative for covid or that you've been vaccinated but that's just a record of an event it's not your actual identity your dna but i wonder if all those things are sort of converging in a national identity database, which which would be very troubling from an electoral point of view, because you'd be harder to steal elections if if you had to prove that people were A, who they are, and B, alive. But you have to win them outright, which would be, yeah, that would be problematic yeah, for- It's too, <laughs> for, it's no good. It's no down, good. Down here in, in Argentina, everything is on, is attached to your phone. Uh, and yeah. since phones are attached yeah. to everybody's arms, there, you know, we're kind of like going through the, yeah, it's a singularity cyborg type uh, event whereby, so we have Mercado Pago, we have, um, which is just kind of a payment system down here that's connected to a listed company called Mercado Libre, which is kind of like a South American Amazon in a way. Um, and uh, so Mercado Pago is uh, connected to that. And then you can have a bunch of digital banks where they actually don't have any physical locations, but they're almost... Uh, they're kind of analogous to maybe like an Airbnb or an Uber where, you know, they're, they're a huge bank, but they don't have any branch locations um, in the way that Airbnb doesn't have any, you know, any actual hotels or whatever. They just kind of, you know, rent it out through third parties. Um, but it did, it, it, I was interested to note how seamlessly uh, everybody transitioned from a cash society, which down here in Argentina is, you know, just because of the nature of their inflationary past or their inclination to inflate every, you know, 10 years or whatever, uh, how seamlessly they, they migrated from a, a very prized cash economy, which, you know, favors privacy and individual transactions and all that kind of stuff that's lends itself to off the books, um, you know, type negotiations, just straight, everybody just migrated immediately onto their phone, immediately onto digital banks that are easily traced. Um, at the beginning of COVID. And it was, of course, it, it was all under the auspices of, well, you know, we need contactless, you know, cash is transferring COVID around the world. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's just r- ridiculous things. And people just signed up for it in a, you know, in a frenzy, in a foaming frenzy of fear. They're like, all right, just take all my, take all my details, whatever information you need about me. I just need to be COVID free. Uh, it was, a, it was a pretty, well, transition. you know, it's, there's a, it's, so we've been writing about this, um, or I have anyway, since 2016, when I helped Tim Price with the war on cash and Andy Haldane, who then was uh, with the Bank of England, not as the governor, but in some capacity had talked about the 
the desirability of moving to cashless society purely for the sake of of allowing monetary policy to to be more effective with zero bound interest rates that because people as interest rates approach zero what sweden showed and what they saw in the uk was that it actually increased a preference for cash which was the opposite of what they wanted they wanted people to to consume and not to save but people said oh this price signal's weird something's wrong i better keep money on hand but since then the 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 cashless argument has has not it may still well be about the effectiveness of monetary policy from a central bank perspective but it's it's a key component of it a component of it has always been the elimination of privacy in financial affairs for people uh, so cash as a bearer instrument allows consenting parties to do business out of the visibility of the state if you're a business you collect sales tax maybe there's a receipt not that anyone's trying to break the law but but you're right since covid it's it said okay one cash is a vector of contagion two it's a lot easier to pay for things it's less scary if you don't have to touch other people or touch their disgusting infested money and i think the other element of it now especially as we get closer to another stimulus payment in the united states and and uh, the and all of the other policy reactions across the world is that the only way you can receive cash from the government is to get it electronically so it, it just comes to your phone you know this idea that you had to actually mail a check to people which then they right. had to endorse and deposit in a bank <laughs> right so, you know like i was blown away last year pretty when antiquated, I yeah. downloaded the bank of america app and i could take a picture of a check which I was <laughs> and and now just to be clear it's a simulacrum of a simulacrum of a simulacrum <laughs> of an actual money somewhere down the line. <laughs> yeah, it's like a sixth order derivative, but yeah, it's I, the Kevin Bacon of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, and just to be clear, I don't get checks from the government ever mm. anymore. I only write checks to the government. I was someone was paying me back with a check, uh, so I, I I was like, how can I possibly cash this? I don't. There's no a branch of the bank within a hundred miles. So I just did it with my phone, but I, I think all of those trends are, are converging in something has happened mentally um, at a collective level where the res any resistance, which is rational, that's probably, you know, a point that we would both agree with that uh, rational resistance to these things happens at an individual level. The acceptance tends to happen at the collective level mm -hmm. because it, it's a mob or a crowd type of action. The real, the real problem, which may be solved by Amazon, maybe Jeff Bezos, now that he's leaving his company later this year, will go straight to work for the NSA or or for the government or something, and produce a phone, a cheap phone, which can be sent to everyone, which comes preloaded, not just with talk and text, <laughs> um, and and of course location compulsory location tracking and, and surveillance, but with, with money, because there's a lot of people that are unbanked. They have mm -hmm. to use cash because they don't have enough money to open a bank account or to get credit. So that's the real barrier, I think, to, uh, to a widespread cashless society is, is people. And it, there's a lot of people that are below, you know, the 1% the are doing really well, but, but the bottom 50%, the net worth of those people is illiquid and uh, cash is indispensable to people who are at the margins of society. You yeah. can make a crude joke too, but certain things you just can't do without cash. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a crude in joke any, here. Yeah. In any event, um, I will say this about Amazon. I think it's <laughs> to, to mention it that, that, you know, Bill and I, especially Bill, when he first started writing about the river of no returns back in 2000, was was critical of Amazon's business model because the more they sold, the less they made. So, you know, Bezos always said that the plan was to reinvest all the operating profits in growing the size of the store so that they sold everything. It was the world's everything store. And that eventually the market share would yield um, dominance. And it, at some point that would result in profit. And none of that was true by the way, until mm -hmm. recently. And it wasn't true because the retail model got better. It's only true because Amazon Web Services is a giant cash machine. 
and they used all that spare computing capacity. So if you look at the, the revenue numbers for the uh, 2020 annual year, AWS, from which Bezos' successor will come, generated $45 billion in revenue, but $13.5 billion in, in operating profit. That was 63% of the total operating profit for the entire company. The entire company did $385 billion in revenues, $340 billion of which was from the retail side. But on $340 billion in sales for the retail side, they only generated less than $10 billion in operating profit. Wow. And that was in a year where everybody was buying stuff online. Everybody was everybody was on the couch in their tidy whities ordering things they didn't need with money that the government was hopefully going to send them sometime in the future. So things couldn't have gone more right for Amazon in 2020. One could argue that is you know. So I will once again ring the bell on Amazon and say when the CEO leaves and they record a hundred billion dollar quarter in sales. That was in the fourth quarter, you know, that, that coincided with the first uh, stimulus payments and all the, the, the money that got to consumers. Um, I thought that was a really interesting story this week, especially in contrast with the fact that ExxonMobil re- reported a $20 billion loss for the year. It was its first annual loss in 40 years, mm. had four consecutive quarters of losses. And I saw it's still a, it. it it, it's one of the only companies that's consistently paid a dividend, and the dividend is around seven seven point three percent right now. But the interesting thing from the reporting was that uh, in the fourth quarter, it took I think if this is correct, I'll have to go back and double check, but it took ninety percent of the operating cash flows to pay the dividend, and so there wasn't any money for anything else. You can't it, do that. It, you can't do that out infinitum. <laughs> right. No, you can't. So the question was, how are they going to defend that dividend? Like, are they going to cut mm. the dividend or, uh, or will the oil price go up? So the operating cash flows will go up or do you cut capital ex- expenditure, which is what they effectively did last year is they said, well, we're just going to stop looking for oil and gas. So I was interested in that because Bill and I had just announced last week, we just published our trade of the decade. In, I was going to uh, ask if, we were, if, if that was in the public domain yet and uh, therefore available yeah. for discussion, uh, either specifically or, or in general. But just do you want, want to back up a little bit or rather circle back around and just, just, um, just explain you know, what, the, what the idea of the trade of the decade is and maybe in kind of broad brushstrokes, um, what you and Bill uh, had issued at the end of last month, that being January? Yeah, no problem. I mean, it uh, it started with Bill really in in two, excuse me, in two thousand, because he had he had ritualistically berated Amazon for being a crappy business model in in predicting its demise, and and of course it's just it's been a tremendous performer in the last twenty years, and, and it's outperformed the S and P, uh, and it's been an incredible company. But the idea was to say, okay, let's let's not look at things year over year because that's not what we're trying to do with the Bonner-Denning letter. And it was not what Bill was trying to do with his Bonner family office project. It's not what Bill tries to do as an investor. He invests in businesses in the timeframe for, for whether that idea works out is not one year. It's, it's a longer time, like 10 years. 10, 10 is also an arbitrary figure. It, it could be 20 years. But we thought it was a good enough sample size to see whether the idea was right. And and often, you know, whether it's the business cycle or the credit cycle or any of the other cycles that are involved in economics, 10 years is a good, good baseline. So so trade of the nine years just doesn't have trade (laughs) of the 11 years doesn't have the same ring to it for a marketability. I don't trade of the octa something. I don't know what you'd call it. Trade of the Olympic trade of the Olympiad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there actually are, there are, there's a lot of data looking at presidential cycles. Oh, well that would make, yeah, that's, that's kind of a definite marker, but. Yeah. And, and you know, that it's, it's, I think it's a little less useful because that's generally uh, an analysis of uh, government deficits and which relates to interest rates, which indirectly affects everything else. So it's not that useful if you're really what you're trying to say is how can we take the family money and find something that nobody wants to buy, buy it, forget about it for 10 years, and then make money. 
Or conversely, what is the one thing that that we should definitely not own for the next 10 years because of its performance recently or the valuation suggests that it's you know terrible. And how do we sleep easy during those 10 years and not have ourselves kind of glued to our, our computer monitors with you know racing heart rates and elevated cortisol levels? Right. That's an important point too, because uh, technology has, as we know now with Robinhood and, and the whole GameStop saga, and with the elimination of trading commissions on um, uh, on uh, trading platforms, and it's including the platform on your phone, the holding period on stocks has declined to to very small periods of time. Even though the capital gains taxes haven't declined, and more and more people who've never invested before are buying stocks. Now, I would say more people who've never invested before are buying stocks. That doesn't make them investors. And what it, what it also does is it, and I'm not saying that to diminish them because they don't think they count. They count, but investing is, is about buying some, you know, buying future earnings uh, for less than a dollar, you know, buying a dollar's worth of earnings for 50 cents. That's what you're trying to do. And anything else is a form of speculation. And what it creates is this anxiety about your money. And I think Bill's observation back in 2000 was, that's an unhealthy relationship with money that you know you don't want you don't want one your time to be consumed by constantly managing your money because that doesn't improve your results and it reduces your quality of life <laughs> so what if there was a way to increase my quality of life and make money i know it sounds too good to be true but in <laughs> uh, in 2000 he said well let's sell the us dollar and let's buy gold that's the trade of the decade and gold over the next 20 years was up around 600%. And over that decade was up, uh, I think, uh, around the same amount uh, because it, it went to 1900 and briefly. And when was it, 2011, 2012? So, uh, and the dollar declined, you know, as a result of 9 11, as a result of the war on terror. Lots of other things happened. China entered into the world market, US deficits went up. So, so it was sell the dollar, buy gold. Then he did it again in 2010 and it was mixed results. And the, the trade was to buy Japanese stocks and sell Japanese bonds. And the argument was that Japanese stocks had been in a secular bear market since 1989 when, when the Japanese market peaked and that they were due for a sick, cyclical and secular rise. But the bond market wouldn't because the government had too much debt. Well, that kind of worked out because the stocks went up, but the government just kept adding debt. So Japan's public debt to GDP ratio went from 120% to 220% and it continues to rise. So uh, the government, the, the Bank of Japan supported the bond market. The bond market did not, did not crash. So the short side of the trade was a, didn't lose a lot of money. The long side of the trade made some money. So we knew that we were going to have to revisit this just because when the calendar flipped over, we thought, oh, it's another decade. So what's the trade? And privately, we, we've we been talking about it for about six months. And I was beating the drum for old energy, for oil and gas. One, because uh, there was a lot of negative news flow. Exxon was delisted from the, the Dow. Uh, you have the ESG, Environmental Sustainability and Governance uh, movement in the capital markets to disinvest from oil and gas or fossil fuel companies. So these companies are actually starved of capital. You have companies like BlackRock and Vanguard talking about not investing in companies that contribute to climate change. And the oil price crashed and it went negative. <laughs> so there was a lot of, and then there was a pandemic which slowed, eliminated global travel and trade or slowed it down. It didn't eliminate it. So I said, the news flow is against these companies. And also the other side of the trade is this, what I call a thermodynamic fraud, is the energy transition that we were going to be able by 2050 because of the Paris Climate Accords to transition to a net zero emissions global economy <clears throat> by switching out all of our fuel sources in the economy from oil and gas to electricity or batteries where electricity can be both generated by renewables, transmitted efficiently, and stored efficiently in lithium-ion batteries or some other fictitious new technology that's hyper-efficient. So I thought with the performance of Tesla, with 
the uh, performance of a lot of the renewable stocks that don't make money and and don't don't scale up. I guess this mm-hmm. is the point I made is that they might work if you and I decided to build a cabin out in the woods as a retreat for our podcast listeners to come have a cup of solar brewed coffee. We could, we, could, need- we could fit them all in the in the front porch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't need to scale. Like you could have right. a solar hot water heater uh, that that kept your water hot, that generated electricity and you don't everybody have to could everybody could arrive everybody could arrive in their Tesla provided they had driven <laughs> only 500 miles to get there uh, from the from the last uh, recharging station. <laughs> right, I don't know where they park in the mountains, but you know. Right. The, <laughs> but, but but my point is, the more you look at it, and you know that this, this is not a new argument. The old metric is energy return on energy invested. That you you can't get out more than you get put in. Than, than you put in, unless you have a free source of energy, which is what people say weather-related energy sources are. So wind, hydro, and sun are free, but you have to collect them, and you have to store them, and then you have to transmit them over the grid to people. Mm. And the more I looked at this, I said, that is not going to happen. That is just not going to happen with the speed uh, that people are saying. And it's not going to happen without a huge amount of uh, consumption of oil and gas to power the factories, to make the components that go into the electric cars, that go into the solar panels, that go into the, 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 the more efficient grids and the network that's supposed to transmit all this power. So I just thought, well, okay, the sentiment is terrible. The price performance is terrible. They've been the worst performing investments for the last 10 years. The energy sector is at its smallest uh, relative the, to the rest of the S&P 500 that it's ever been. It was 30% in 1980. It's 3% now. So even if we consume less energy, and even if we get more energy more efficiently from renewables, there is still a massive role for energy. And um, if there's any kind of comeback or recovery from COVID, oil demand, which has actually been pretty steady given the the slowdown in tourism and travel could grow quite quickly. So, and, and the fact that Exxon reported that last year was its first annual loss in 40 years tells me either those people are right and oil and gas and coal are on their way out for good, in which case <clears throat> this is going to be a terrible trade for us, or <laughs> we're going to do okay. Uh, right, the sentiment right. has bottomed and and the demand will increase and the energy transition will be exposed as a thermodynamic fraud, which and, I think and will happen. On that sentiment uh, indicator, I mean, I was perusing a few of the emails that were, were kind of sent around um, uh, with with you and Bill and um, and others on there kind of discussing all this. And I remember one of the one of the data points that I think you you had raised was that uh, Tesla's market cap had eclipsed the total combined market cap of what was it? All forty-four companies in the S and P oil and oil and gas exploration and production index combined. So this we have just one one company. I don't know what that says about the valuation of either of those forty-four companies or Tesla, but it definitely says that there's a big, massive disconnect between the two. And so something, I guess that's that's kind of what you you hope to exploit when there's just a massive disconnect uh, from from reality like that. Yeah. And, you know, I get the argument that people are making about uh, how transformative a shift in the source of fuel for the entire economy can be. So you go from wood to coal, coal to kerosene, kerosene to gas and oil. You know, those are major, this isn't the, if this is an energy transition, it isn't the first one. And it can certainly make tremendous fortunes like John D. Rockefeller, and it can it can bankrupt entire industries. But but part of the logic behind the trade was also that when you're comparing market caps of one company versus 44, that's a financial phenomenon. That's that's the amount of money shareholders or or investors or fund managers or index trackers are willing to to bet on something. And uh, that showed me it broke down on the same argument lines that we've had before about real assets versus financial assets. 
So if you accept the premise that since 2008, when the Fed began QE and the fiscal deficit began to expand and Trump took it up by another $8 trillion, that financial assets have been the primary beneficiary of an expansion in the money supply and a decline in real interest rates, Tesla is, if not the poster boy, in the front row for that argument that liquidity has has flowed to certain types of companies purely as a financial bet about the future. And we think that bet is fully priced. And we think the future isn't as good as they think it's going to be. Tesla just had to recall over 130,000 cars from the National Transportation and Safety Board because of uh, because of a faulty display monitor. So oil's the other side of that trade. It's a real asset. It it you know in terms of British thermal units generated per barrel of oil, it's still the highest density form of energy that we have. Uranium is probably in that conversation too, uh, but no one trusts the science on uranium. Yeah, not a whole lot of public appetite for it. Got a bad reputation. Yeah, well, and you know, if you've seen uh, what was that Amazon miniseries on uh, Chernobyl, you know that that's the nightmare risk is an un- uncontained nuclear reaction that that destroys a climate for thousands of years, even though there's hundreds of nuclear plants that operate safely in, in many places. Uh, but interesting on that, uh, Cameco, the, the, Canadian, the Canadian uranium producer, uh, was up 20% earlier in the week. And uh, part of it could have been this weird short squeeze Reddit army phenomenon. I think part of it, though, is I choose to interpret it as a growing recognition that uh, something cannot come from nothing that the future is going to require energy and the old assets, the old, old economy sources of energy are underpriced. They've underperformed and they're still going to be really important for the next 10 years. So we, you know, Bill wasn't, I don't say, I wouldn't say he was uncomfortable with the trade, but if he was, it's good <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, you're, you're taking something that seems really unpopular and for which the case is not convincing. In fact, he read the first draft of my research and he said, I'm afraid that you made the case for the energy transition so effectively that I wasn't entirely convinced that it's even possible for for old oil, big oil to survive. See, that's, that's so, you just you just did a really good job at steel manning your opposition, Dan. You, you did too good a job at steel manning your opposition. But let's let's come back that. to is the. That, is that the opposite of straw manning? You, you I think it's the opposite of straw manning. Yeah, you 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 make the best you make the best available case for your opposition, and then proceed to dismantle it, uh, brick mm-hmm. by brick, or okay. steel limb by steel limb, whatever that rivet whatever steel man rivet by rivet, pot rivet by weld by, by weld. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, w- I want to talk about the um, I want to talk about this Reddit phenomenon, and you know this is. Probably, well, certainly this year, it's, it's the biggest, most clearly defined manifestation of a, of a story that you and I have been talking about for quite a while. And that is, you know, it is this kind of David and Goliath story where, you know, you have this, the, this massive centripetal force of the state, which is, you know, constantly working to, uh, to centralize power and to uh, insinuate itself into every aspect of, of every individuals uh, private existence um yeah just basically suck all that power into this evil dark black hole of a vortex that is itself and then you have conversely working against that you have uh this the centrifugal force of the market which is spinning everything outwards which is decentralizing which is leveraging things like um you know disrupt uh, distributed networks uh decentralized networks etc cetera, etc cetera. so we'll come back to the reddit story in that in a second but for people who are listening who are on the edge of their seat saying to themselves, okay, so buy energy, buy energy, sell what? What's the other side of the, of the trade of the decade? We spoke about half of it, but uh, I don't think we got to the other half. Oh, that's simple. And that was really Bill. He, he really was convinced and has been that uh, selling the US dollar is the obvious side of that trade. Mm-hmm. Now, they're obviously related in the sense that oil is priced in dollars and any decline in the, in the dollar 
uh, well, more, I guess it's this, that uh, the dollar will decline in value relative to oil, uh, which is to say that the dollar will be subject to a lot of inflationary forces from $28 trillion in debt and uh, annual deficits of two to $5 trillion and no, no political will at all to, to change that trajectory. So that, you know, last year was kind of a crossover point in, in uh, the public attitude or acceptance of deficits. So for example, in July of this year on the 31st, the debt ceiling that was uh, suspended in I think June of 2019 is statutorily supposed to come back into effect. So the, the Congress's two-year suspension of it will expire, which means nothing. I wonder, I wonder what they'll do. <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> Surely yeah, they'll abide they'll, by they'll, their own rules or, or not. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, Joel, it's interesting. I, I was doing some research on this for my weekly update today, and I forgot about this, but um, when the House of Representatives changes hands, they always – the roles change. So the Republicans suspend the debt ceiling and the Democrats argue against it. And then when the Democrats are in control, the, they suspend the debt ceiling. So, you know, ostensibly there's a debate, but there's actually an amendment that was passed or a rule they call it the Gephardt rule named after uh, Richard Gephardt who's a former Congressman from um, Missouri. And he was the speaker of the house for some time. And he was the majority leader of the democratic party for quite some time. And the rule was that if, the House of Representatives passed a budget which exceeded uh, the deficit or the, the, the statutory debt limit. So they said, we're going to spend $2 trillion next year, but that we know that that $2 trillion will take the government's deficit over the statutory limit. The Gephardt rule automatically raised the debt ceiling. Well, it, it would be, it, to, yeah, it'd be to horrible to have to have all that extra debate to like, you know, trim the fat and everything. It's just write in a rule yeah. that is just that, what is it? The, 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 um, the, the rule of costs always ex, uh, rising to fill the available space. Yeah. Expenses always match income, but, or in the government's case, exceed income. Right. Right. And, but, <laughs> Expenses so said, never match well, income. <laughs> <laughs> so they said, oh, well, let's just make a rule. Anytime we hit our credit limit, let's just increase the credit limit. I mean, imagine Genius. if you and I could do Genius. and say, oh, sorry, Mr. Denning, you can't buy that Tesla with your credit card. It's, uh, it's too expensive. Well, I've, I'll just raise my credit limit then. Yeah, it let's automatically, look, as you said that, it automatically went up by the exact amount <laughs> that's on the sticker price of that Tesla vehicle. Required. Oh. Yeah. It's genius. Now, Magic. in the U.S. system, obviously, the Senate doesn't have that rule. So the House has to bargain with the Senate if it wants to do that. And to the extent that the Republicans uh, either controlled the Senate or it took 60 votes to pass a measure, then they could modify the spending, uh, but ended up still increasing the debt limit. But uh, and, and, the, and then the president, whoever that is, has to either sign the bill or veto the bill. So there are some checks. There's never any balances but there are some checks on it. But I was doing the math on the recent uh, monthly statement of the Treasury, which is fascinating reading for those of you who are interested in this sort we'll, of thing. But we'll, we'll link to that below for all of those who are <laughs> foaming at the mouth to get your teeth into that. <laughs> well, I was just adding up the uh, non-COVID-related monthly spending items for the federal government as disclosed by the Treasury. Uh, and I don't have them right in front of me, but... They're not, they're not, um, they wouldn't surprise anyone. So it's Social Security, Medicaid, defense, net interest on the debt. Those tend to be the four largest expenditures. Then veterans benefits is, is in the neighborhood. Um, and then obviously Medicare, Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security. So those three are in so-called entitlements, but really the more correct legal term for them is that it's mandatory spending. The, the law has been written in such a way that Congress ha can't re reduce the nominal amount that's being spent. And in fact, it's legislated that, the, that it increases by 2% or, or something like that each year to keep up with fictitious inflation, which is much higher. But um, So they're not touching that, is my point. And the amount of revenue generated by the government on a monthly basis is barely enough to cover those items. Barely. And in some months it's not. That doesn't include the COVID spending, 
the Paycheck Protection Program, or all the just stopgap measures that they've funded in the last year and a half for COVID or the last year. So the only item that that you could cut in the entire budget that would allow allow it to be modestly in deficit rather than massively in deficit is defense spending. And there's no willingness to do that. You know, there's there's one party in Washington and they're for war and it's the warfare state and the welfare state. Mm-hmm. And sometimes one person drives and then when he gets tired, the other person drives. But I was looking at that and I think Bill's it's idea- a long, It's a long road trip. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta <laughs> yeah. switch out the welfare guy for the warfare guy from time yeah, to time. Sometimes you just get tired of driving <laughs> and then just go back in the other direction. But um, it's always going to hell no matter which yeah. way you turn. But yeah, it's the Thumber and Louise. His, <laughs> his point was that that, that, that just, uh, that is, uh, as this Congressional Budget Office says, as the Office of Management and Budget, that the fiscal path of the United States is unsustainable. And, you know, we've been saying that for a long time. And the counter argument from Stephanie Kelton and the MMT theory, modern monetary theory people is, no, 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 the government can run a deficit that's 200% of GDP. It just makes sure that inflation isn't too high and, and uh, money is no object. And that was interesting last year because that was a change in Washington's acceptance of much higher deficits because it's a reality now. The deficit is the debt is 100% of GDP. It's growing. It's more than that, and it's not going to get smaller. And so, um, a lot of other things come from that, which includes the flight into cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin's run to 40 grand. But Bill just said the short side of the trade is easy. The the world in which the dollar was uh, the reserve currency because it was the best store of value is over because the reality for the United States government at the fiscal level is that it requires more debt and more deficits ad infinitum. And that is not compatible with the dollar being a store of value in which commodities are priced. So I took the long side with oil and energy. He took the short side with the dollar. All right. So it's, it's almost um, a buy real, sell fake uh, kind of buy, buy tangible, sell intangible by honest sell fiat um, pair trade there, which probably even just going on the last 10 years would be a, a complete inversion of what uh, what had happened looking back at the performance of energy and the performance of, I mean, I guess the dollar was pretty steady uh, over, the, over the past decade while all this kind of built up underneath. But uh, th- th- there are fissures in that dam, uh, it sounds like, and you just outlined them pretty clearly right then. Well, yeah, and, and the dollar was uh, steady against other currencies, mm. against the euro, which is a basket case, against the yen, which is Japan has you know been trying to manage it as a weak currency for a long time. So, compared to other paper currencies, is not the correct metric to to uh, evaluate the dollar. But you know, there's risk, uh, and the risk is that one, if interest rates rise, capital intensive businesses um, will pay more to borrow. Uh, to build their pipelines and explore for oil. And the other is that this secular trend of a shift in the S&P companies from uh, tangible to intangible assets is a long-term trend. And that's an interesting investment proposition because uh, you know if you can buy a company that generates really high returns on capital through intangible assets, which are not expensive because it's intellectual property or it's not a factory, it's an algorithm, then it's a better business, right? You know, fewer costs, higher returns on capital, or they're uh, they're capital efficient, so they might have high capital costs, but they're not recurring. In uh, com- companies like Hershey or Coca Cola, mm. with really strong brands, can generate increased cash flow without spending more money. That's not the case in the oil and gas business. You know, you're you're constantly depleting your chief asset, which is your you, you know your reserves of discovered oil and gas. And it's constantly costing you a lot of money to do it, um, but they managed to do it, and Exxon's managed to do it for a long time. But it would be a shift in the S and P because I, I can't remember the chart. But in the last ten years, the the if you look at the 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 capital structure of S and P five hundred companies and look at their balance sheets, there's been a huge shift, and the uh, the large majority, so it's over fifty percent. I want to say it's cl- closer to seventy percent are not capital assets like property, plant, and equipment. It's goodwill, cash, 
or intangible assets. So Amazon networks or um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, all that stuff. So that, you know, that's that's the other side of the trend. So so that was the other part we, is instead of going short the dollar, you could go short Amazon. We could go short Facebook. You could say that the the, the benefit of the network effect of these companies building audiences and dominating has matured. Uh, but ne- you know, you don't see analysts saying that. I saw this morning an analyst raised his price target on Alphabet to three thousand dollars per share, and by fifty percent he raised it, and then raised it to five thousand dollars a share for Amazon. So you got a, lo- a lot of cheerleaders saying Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, Apple. Uh, they're going to consolidate their position as the most important companies, not in just the American economy, but in the world and uh, pay any price, bear any burden, borrow any money, buy that stock. That's basically so, what there's. So, so this is an interesting, uh, this is a pretty interesting inflection point because you had written uh, to Bill and myself and a couple other people uh, a little while ago that the market um, to, to kind of piggyback off of Buffett's observation that it is in the short term a voting machine and in the long term a weighing machine, uh, you'd said that it's, it was essentially broken uh, as, a weighing machine and that in the short term, and I'm referring of course to this, the whole uh, retail trading um, story and GameStop going, you know, blowing up through the roof. We're talking about stocks that are are worth, you know, a few billion dollars, um, have a few billion dollars of market cap going up two, three, four, 500% in a couple of weeks trading like, like penny stocks. So while the market is in this discovery process, how do we what what do we make of this kind of phenomena that just completely blows up short-term rational valuations in favor of you know what we might consider kind of swarm or herd mentality and how does that feed into to bring the question into an even bigger sphere into the whole david and goliath kind of thing that we set off with uh at the beginning because there's a lot of aspects to that story which we can we can tease out yeah, well, it's it's really interesting uh, because my my contention in that email was that what Wall Street really objected to in the GameStop Reddit thing was that the little guy had managed to leverage a lot of liquidity by it was a decentralized pool of liquidity in the retail investment world and all it really needed to be more effective to make it a force multiplier was to have a narrative attached to it and to get everybody moving in the direction of that narrative. And that's what they did. Uh, It didn't Mm -hmm. have anything to do with the fundamentals except for their observation that 130% of the float was short. So, you know, Wall Street was was fail. So they lost their. A, they literally lost their shorts. That's what happens when the, <laughs> when the tide goes out. That's a. <laughs> well, it, it, you know. So, so the question is, how much do the fundamentals matter? Because suddenly mm. people were talking <clears throat> about a trade that didn't accord with the fundamentals. GameStop was a terrible business, and therefore the shorts were right. And on a fundamental basis, the the assets of the company being an, a physical retailer, when people are now buying and downloading games online. None of it added up, and therefore it was fraud because the stupid people failed to understand the business case against the company, and all they were really doing was was um, mobilizing their liquidity in a collective way to make themselves rich in defiance of the fundamentals. I thought, well, that's what you guys have been doing on Wall Street, right? Right. right. Day, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's in, that's in your jo- that's in your job description, <laughs> right? That's exactly what you do, and you have exploit a whole industry. weaknesses in the market. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so you have CNBC out there putting on hedge fund managers who create these stories about industries they really like, sectors that are hot, growth they see is doubling or tripling, blah blah blah, all this garbage. And all they're really doing is they're creating a story and they're pumping liquidity and it doesn't cost them any money because the Fed, the Wall Street banks who own the Fed have lowered the cost of money for institutions to, to effectively zero. So, mm-hmm. so they created a casino where they get to run the tables and they get to decide which games are going to be popular. And I think they didn't like being on the other side of that. But I guess my observation was the dynamic was exactly the same. It was yeah. just that the control of the the meme. What, what's the word? Uh, it's the, the, the meme sphere. 
<laughs> no, it's it's the Marxian phrase. It's not the means of production. It's the memes. Of oh, the production. memes of production. Yes. Who is controlling memes of, the memes of production? Very good. <laughs> yeah. The memes of production had been stolen by the proletariat. And uh, and they were using using that to uh, enrich themselves in, in in a way at the expense of the the bourgeoisie. Yeah, and, uh, I, and I noticed too that 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 um, those who were attempting to clamp down on this, you know, swarm like um, leveraging capacity of those those vastly disseminated uh, redditors or you know forum. And I, I'd like, by the way, how they're you know they're always given these pejoratives, you know, these Reddit rednecks or something like that. It's it's never just you know a bunch of people getting together and deciding to. You know, go go at something together and and pool their liquidity to to leverage their position. It's so uh, I um I noticed that I've got a little uh, quote here. I saw uh, Janet Yellen has kind of waded into the into the fray here, and I don't know that she is intentionally providing a bit of comic relief, but she's uh, she's doing so in any case. Uh, one of her spokes people, uh, Treasury spokeswoman Alexandra. Uh, Lamana said in a statement to Reuters, this is, this is quite funny, uh, Secretary Yellen believes the integrity of markets is important and has asked for a discussion of recent volatility in the financial markets and whether recent activities are consistent with, get this, investor protection and fair and efficient markets. I mean, this, just to give some context here, is out of the office of somebody who has been paid a little over $7 million in speaking fees for by Citi, Goldman, and uh, various other large Wall Street institutions ever since she left her post back in 2018, giving some indication as to what side of this quote unquote discussion uh, that she has convened, she might, she might reside on. So her paymasters are basically saying, look, we've, uh, you know, our boys, Citadel, uh, notoriously, lost uh you know lost their shorts on this particular trade now it's up to janet yellen who we pay uh to arbitrate what is uh indeed a fair and efficient market i mean how does anybody look at that with a straight with a straight face tell me what i'm missing there i think you got it i think that's it spot on that the um for suddenly these people to be uh uh, defending the principle of integrity in financial markets and fair and efficient <laughs> markets is is laughable. It's laughable. Yeah. And I think plenty of people who didn't know that before, who didn't quite understand it said, this is nonsense. You, you people are, are being incredibly hypocritical here. But I think it's, uh, you know, we shouldn't underestimate the danger that people face by this as well, because there's, I noticed in the last week, a phrase uh, that was uttered by some journalists who were uh, clamoring on the pages of the New York Times for a new role in the government of realities are someone to distinguish between misinformation and truth, mm. not even facts, but truth, you know, which is, uh, <laughs> I don't know. We could get into a very long yeah. discussion about the difference between the two, but, but the, one of the phrases that, that was used in the article by someone said, we need to be concerned about these networked factions of people who are in essentially a closed ecosystem of communication, either through Facebook, Twitter, Signal, Telegram, or some other digital communication that's encrypted and not visible to the government. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing is they're 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 not they're not engaging in collectivist action or action at the local Soviet level. <laughs> what they're doing <laughs> is they are conspiring, they're mm -hmm. colluding, they're collaborating. Uh, in a way that's dangerous, both politically, when they when they communicate in a way that uh, allows them to storm the Capitol in a giant no-knock raid, or <laughs> or that's allows them to uh, you know to uh, to artificially manipulate the price of a stock that fundamentally should go down. And violate the sanctity of our markets, the integrity of the our fairness, and, yeah, the fairness of our democracy and <laughs> and the American way. It's like the, the encouraging thing is that the powers that be, whether they're in Wall Street or Washington, are scared. They are scared now because their power is threatened, and you know they've awoken a sleeping giant, 
and the giant is a lot of people who are now acting together in their own interests because they realize that the people uh, on Wall Street in Washington have been acting in their own interests since 1971. So uh, I think this is a really interesting moment um, in financial markets and, and politics. But don't underestimate the dr draconian, totalitarian, and brutalist response of the state in protecting one, its political power, and two, control of the money system, because that's where they get, you know, they get the first benefit of the money and, and that literally pays for the system. So they will not take this lightly. Right. Yeah. It's, I've got a motorcycle going by outside here, but yeah, it's, um, it's very interesting to, to note, of course, that, you know, the Fed is, is uh, essentially funding both sides of this trade, but one side of the trade they're funding with, you know, $600 stimmy checks. And the other side of the trade, they're favorite, more favorably funding with first access to credit, which is a huge, uh, you know, a huge advantage for for that for that first mover or the the, the entity that receives the, the access to credit from those windows first. But just to um, address what you were talking about, in particular with regards to uh, the 5.8 million uh, Davids out there who are you know chatting with each other on Reddit forums, forums and so. Such I read um, this following uh, new uh, news story in the New York Times this morning, and the headline, which just sets the tone immediately, uh, as the old grade lady uh, tends to do these days, um, it, it very ominously says, "Are private messaging apps the next misinformation hotspot?" And then putting a question mark there as if that's not just a declarative <laughs> statement. Um, and then under, I'll just read a little bit here. It says, uh, Telegram and Signal, the encrypted services that keep conversations confidential are increasingly popular. Our tech columnists discuss whether this could get messy. Uh, and then a shift to private messaging has renewed a debate over whether encryption is a double-edged sword. While the technology prevents people from being spied on, good thing, it might also make it easier for criminals and misinformation spreaders to do harm without getting caught. I mean, when is the public going to tire of this just ground old saw that we need to surrender liberty for the promise of security when this state is, shouldn't be in the business of either promising or guaranteeing either? Well, well, now you're just being a super spreader of the idea that- Yeah, yeah, right. People, that- that, that it's okay to have privacy, even you don't necessarily have to have something to hide. Uh, but I think it, it really is going to be a full spectrum assault on the idea of transparency because, you know, encryption is the opposite of transparency. It says, uh, I will show people uh, what I choose to show them or talk to them in the way I want to talk to them. And no one else is entitled to do that. And that's just, uh, that's too menacing of a threat for, for at the financial level, it's clearly menacing. In a, you know, that's obviously what Bitcoin was partly designed to obviate is to say, we, we're going to do this without your permission or your observation. But uh, I don't know, you know, it's, I, I'm, there's something, there's just this gulf, I think, between the view that you and I share and the view that's on the front page of the New York Times or CNN or held by people at the Fed or Janet Yellen at the Treasury about where, you know, what, what, liberty is and whether it's dangerous. And now this may be a demographic thing and it may be a cultural thing too with the United States that when we got whatever, 80 million baby boomers, even though we got 80 million Gen Zers, some people might be at the point in their life where they value safety more than liberty. And if you make them scared for a variety of reasons, whether it's COVID or um, uh, funding terrorism or uh, drugs or pornography or whatever, then a lot of people will just say, yeah, you know, these people obviously have something to hide and we should ban that. Mm. So that's where the argument is right now. And what I'm more concerned about is not just uh, uh, free speech, but free thought, the exercise of free thought, where people are now suggesting that the holding of non-mainstream views is almost a pathology that requires some kind of re-education or certainly some monitoring because it's dangerous speech and it's dangerous thought. You know, it's not enough. It's what you say isn't it's, this is what Orwell was on about and Zamyatin was on about. And we, it's, it's the interior life of the person. That's the ultimate object of the state's control because you can shut people up physically. You can throw them in jail or you can shoot them, 
but you know, you can't kill an idea unless you somehow corrupt or corrode people's spirit or their, their interior life. And they get confused about whether these things are values to uphold. And that's, what's going on in the culture right now is this incredibly organized and also in some ways chaotic attempt to muddle people's ability to distinguish values. And I don't care what they are. I'm not saying people should have certain values in a political way. I'm just saying this kind of nihilism that nothing matters, but what the state says you can and can't do, that has got some powerful momentum right now. So, you know, I'm worried about the first amendment and I'm worried about the second amendment because uh, as we were discussing earlier, you know, the ultimate refuge in my in my view of, of your ability to defend your right to free thought and free speech is to protect yourself against the predation of the state with, with a gun or to defend yourself. And uh, they're coming after that too. So, you know, it's, it's a very dangerous time for people like us, but it's a, it's a, it's a dangerous time for everyone because these things, you know, the, I'll get off my soapbox in a minute, but what people forget when they attack Western so-called Western values or Western tradition. And I'm talking about going back to, mosaic law and going back to uh justinian and then obviously the the greeks and the athenians as you and and anya your wife know very well that's the exception in the history of human civilization is the creation of a public space where individuals uh have their liberties and rights whether they're god-given or natural are are protected by law and assumed as the as the first principle and they are, it's really easy to damage that foundation. And if you, you can go back and address grievances and wrongs and blights and, and horrible moral evils that were done in free societies like slavery or the fact that only men could vote for a long time, you know, those, you can have those conversations in a free society because we believe in self-examination and self-improvement. But when you, st- when you start shutting down that conversation on ideological grounds, it's, uh, then you revert back to uh, might is stronger than right, and right. Uh, we're we're on that we're on that edge right now. I think. Yeah, it's interesting. But I was speaking with uh, our friend and colleague Chris Mary the other day, and kind of taking a little virtual tour through his bookshelf. And at the end of the conversation, I asked him. Um, we were talking about the importance of reading views that. Uh, at least uh, prima facie stand in opposition to your own so that both you can so that you can both you know kind of flesh out your your field of intellectual vision and you can you can test your own views to see if they uh, if they stand up and so I asked him if there was anybody that he would um, that with whom he vehemently disagreed but who he would recommend others uh, read and he had just finished um, uh, Hobbes's Leviathan, who he he thought, look, this guy takes a a really brutal um, view of humanity. You know, the 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 a life nasty shoot, uh, nasty brutish and short out in the wilderness pre pre the state uh, coming to you know help us all hold hands and sing kumbaya uh, together thereafter. Um, but it almost feels like we're regressing to to a kind of totalitarianism whereby. We're, we, you know, we came out of out of um, out of this, you know, b- brutish nature, and we were and we flourished, and we had these open spaces, these agoras, in which we could exchange ideas and challenge uh, challenge ourselves and others without fear of recourse from an author an authoritarian state. But when we get back to the you know, to the the understanding that there is only one opinion, and that is the opinion that is deemed correct by the state. Uh, then we've—I feel like we've surrendered civilization and and all that's precious therein. So that's that's hard won, but uh, very easy lost, as the saying goes, right? <laughs> well, and maybe it's cyclical. If we're lucky, you know, Bill's wrote about this in the terms of the U.S. as an empire, and I, I think there's a lot of different phrases, people or words that other people have used to describe it. So uh, uh, Tal- Talib Nassim Talib describes it as fragility that. And we know that the complex systems are extremely fragile because they require lots of different connections, which can be easily broken. And so maybe that's partly what's happening, that globalization 
uh, just created a really fragile system. And maybe um, the net networking of the world into social media and 24-7 media turns out to, to be a negative in some ways. The, the more connected you are, the, the more confused you are because these are perspectives and views that are outside your daily life, but they consume part of your mental life and it confuses people. It could just be entropy too, you know? It's just hard to sustain. <laughs> We're winding down. <laughs> things fall apart and it takes a, it's, it's hard to keep them going. Uh, and we've thrown a lot of money and credit uh, at keeping the world growing in the last 30 years. And neither of those are infinite resources. And, but I think the optimistic thing is that maybe it's just decentralization. That, um, as I've said in kind of clunky terms, the, there are diminishing marginal returns to scale and centralization. And in fact, there are negative returns now. And so the rational, normal evolutionary response would be to do less centralization and, and more localization, both politically and economically and, and um, maybe agriculturally in lots of other ways. But that means the people who are at the center of things will no longer be as important and, and no longer be as powerful. And so even though I think it's a natural and beneficial process, they're fighting it tooth and nail uh, to create you know, a prison or a feudal estate, a global feudal estate, a prison planet, as Alex Jones might say. So um, there's a lot going on, but uh, well, you know, can't solve it all in one day, but we're, we're trying. Yeah, well, let's hope that, uh, I guess, political black holes uh, collapse in on themselves uh, just as, as they do in the, in the world of natural phenomena. But uh, one thing that we don't have uh, infinite uh, amounts of is time. See there, Dan? See how I did that? So let's uh, wrap it up. Thank you very much for taking the last uh, hour and a half or so of your, of your Wednesday. Uh, I appreciate it. And uh, let's get together and check in on the state of the world again. So. Sounds good, Joel. See you, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.